Coach Edelstein here, your celeb expert and your celeb savant. Celeb Savant is a weekly entertainment show. We have long-form career retrospective type interviews with celebrities, singers, actors, and industry experts. I met Jason Goliath when he was the host of the BMW M-Fest cocktail party and I was a guest. The next day on the Saturday uh, where I was working at M-Fest, I saw him running around in Lederhosen and I knew that we would be fast friends. With a commanding stage presence, ridiculous amount of energy and a character-based set focused on making audiences laugh at life's uncomfortable truths, Jason has performed successfully at numerous corporate events, leading comedy rooms and events such as Blacks Only, Kings and Queens of Comedy, Johannesburg International Comedy Festival, Comedy Central International Comedy Festival, BET Experience, Melville Underground, Away Wednesday, Comedy Jam, Comics Choice Awards, Winner's Lap, and many more. Jason is no stranger to television, having appeared in numerous commercials and shows such as Dancing with the Stars, Celebrity Game Night, amongst many others. Up next on Celebs Front, we've got Jason Goliath. So this is Celebs Front, and live in studio, I've got Mr. Jason Goliath. So Jason... Tell us, how are you doing? What's happening in your life? And where are you in the world, first of all? So, how I'm doing is amazing, if, if I'm honest. I'm, I'm amazing. I am exhausted. But I, I, I can only explain it as it's the most gratifying tired I've ever been because I know why I'm tired. And I'm tired from doing wonderful things and tired from doing my favorite things every day um, and just making my dreams come true. So, I'm in a, I'm in a, I'm in a wonderful space. And where I am is... I feel like my voice is breaking. I feel like you know when you're a, you're a, you're a, you're a kid and and this is your voice, and then all of a sudden this other voice. It's like it's like the movie Venom. You know what I mean? Where you've got this this kind of hi hi hi, and then you know what I mean this, and then but the difference though is this is not the, the 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 voice that's coming through is it it takes years to find your voice on stage in comedy. I think a lot longer than most art forms, if not all art forms, and it takes so long that I thought I'd found my voice. Then COVID happened. And then the, the time I spent with myself, the time I spent with the content that I was putting out at the time, um, the time I spent with my audiences and what, what people in general need, I think provoked a, 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 a whole new voice. And now I'm in a space where I just feel like everything is intentional. Everything is on purpose. Um, and everything is feeding everything and kind of moving into the same direction. So, I mean, I'm in this, this wonderful new space with, with, with comedy. Um, and, I, and I feel like my voice broke. I feel like I found my Barry White, you know? Okay, so let's take it all the way back to the beginning. Tell us how the J- Jason Goliath's journey started and with your comedy and your television and all that stuff. So I mean, if you want to go, if you want to go all the way back, is I was born on the fifteenth of November, nineteen eighty, um, which was which was you know, and I, and and this is part of the new show in that I kind of realized that the eighties was a very spectacular time to be born for so many different reasons, particularly in South Africa, where the eighties was great for the rest of the world because it was kind of people born into analog 
that experience this digital migration um, and, and, and therefore are, are kind of, you know, I think a lot of comedians call us elder millennials, people that can understand technology, but are also au fait with a, 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 a TDK cassette and a pen <laughs> and what those things, what those things mean. And if you don't know what that means, it's because you're born after the 90s. Relax. It's fine. Google it. Yeah. Google it. Google it. Google it. <laughs> And I was, I was, you know, my, my mom tells this, this, this amazing story of the fact that, I mean, I was born in what is now Tambo Memorial Hospital, was, was then Boxburg General Hospital. Um, and it was, it, was, it was a crazy time. It was, it was a time where she says the nurses would walk through the corridors saying, Gunners, come and fetch your gunners. Abantwana, come and fetch your gunners. Like an SPCA vibe, but for, but for kids. You know what I mean? It was, it was this, 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 this weird and wonderful time. And, and... I was also born in in kind of the end, but I think for people like my parents in 1980, you know, didn't know it was it was heading towards the end of an era, and that era was apartheid in 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 South Africa. So not only did I see analog and digital, but I also saw uh, apartheid from a very different, very protected uh, uh, light because you know my parents protected me as much as they as much as they could. Um, but it also allowed me to to be, you know, one of the first people of color in my new school um, and what those transitions were like and what that pressure was like, not only for ourselves, but for our parents who were sacrificing everything to try and give us, you know, more opportunities. And I, and I make a joke where I say, like, you know, at the time when I look back, I think that uh, my mom and, and many moms like my mom were consciously praying that, you know, one day if I worked hard and, and kept my head in the game, I would grow up to be white. You know what I mean? It, 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 um, it, was, it was that time where there was just so much, so much pressure, so much ignorance um, and this horrible, terrifying, mortifying genius system. Um, that that kind of separated us to the point that even within our localized communities we were separated. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, I I, I I I went through all of that. I then was this hyper ambitious kid that was hyper ambitious, but not to win awards, not to get essay colors, not to not to not to graduate cum laude, but to you know finish all of this studying and academia and nonsense. Uh, and I don't know if I can swear, but all of this bullshittery yeah. <laughs> uh, of school and academia, and get to the point. Where I could finally make some money because at a very young age I realized that that money is the thing that that affords us things, yeah. um, and I wanted so many things, and 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 my parents didn't have money and. It was simple things, you know. You come home from school and you complain to your mom because you go, "Yes, we we were talking about about Christmas presents, mm. and and my friend Warwick got a real radio-controlled car, and and he's and my car had a wire on it, and I don't know if that's because you were trying to get me to exercise because I had to run behind this little <laughs> car, uh, but why would you not? I was like, "Mom, what were you thinking? Like, why would you not buy me a radio-controlled car?" And she would just be like, "Because I bought you, as, you know, what I could afford. Yeah. I couldn't, I couldn't afford what Warwick's parents could afford. They're in a different situation to us, um, and and just having those little conversations." me to believe that true freedom and and in my mind true happiness would come with money and therefore success was defined only around money if i and 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 the sum that i speak about on stage is the sum in my mind became very quickly probably from the age of 17 18 already success equals happiness if i had money i would be happy and that's the simple thing i looked around me and the optics were that those that had bucks were far happier they went to nicer holidays they lived in nicer houses they didn't have to swim in the public pool and and dodge trolls you know what i mean they never had to, that do, troll dodging was not a was not a thing for rich people they had their own pools they had they, they were dodging creepy crawlies i was dodging other people's trolls i can't explain it more graphic than that. Um, so can I just pause you Yes, because I can carry on forever. So, 
going into school yes. as a first colored person in a, in that school. Yes, in a Model C school. Did you know at the time that that was the situation or were you completely unaware? So weirdly, we were hyper-conscious because not only were we going into that school, but you couldn't go to that school if you didn't live in that in the geographic location that okay. fed the school. So with the Group Areas Act ending kind of 91, 92, uh, my folks were very quick to jump on this opportunity to finally be able to buy property wherever you want and move your kids to wherever you could afford instead of where the government kind of had legislated yeah. you to stay. And within those communities, everybody was forced to be the same and that's where the, the difference comes in. So I go, I experienced racism from a very different perspective. Like growing up, because I was so guarded and because I spent so much time in El Dorado Park, I didn't experience racism from white people as much as I experienced it from other colored people because the system had made us racist towards ourselves. Our parents would talk about things like hair and complexion and the fact that, you know, you, you, you you can't bring home a dark person with a thick strand because what about the children? That's what they would say because white was right. It was an indoctrination and, yeah. and, and they were kind of doing the best they could to help us have the easiest kind of path in this very, very difficult, very complicated world. And of course, now it's completely different. I remember making jokes about the fact that when people had those rhino horns on the front of their Hilux buckies uh, and, and protecting the rhino, I'm all for protecting the rhino, but I didn't have a rhino horn. I had an afro. I was like, let's protect natural hair. <laughs> you know what I mean? Let's get rid of these weaves and bring back the afro. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because as you, as I kind of grew up, it was beat into me that that flowing straight hair was beautiful and thick curly hair wasn't. And when I look at the world now, I'm like, flowing straight hair is the most boring hair you can have. I'm sorry for you. But now you've got one style, one option. Whether your hair is wet, whether it's raining outside, where if you're a colored person, oh, you can now use an iron on that hair and come with the nice curtains, we used to call it. You can come out with curtains, we used to call the people Hladahara, Gladys Knight, you know what I mean? You got, you got, the, you got the Hladahara. And yeah. then, I, then I would, then I would, you know, if when I look back, I go, you know, colored hair is actually the best possible hair you can have. It's like we have all of your strengths and none of your weaknesses because we can iron it to make it look straight. If it just drizzles, ah, ah, that hair is going straight back home, directly back to Afro. (laughs) If you see a colored woman running, just look in the sky. I'm telling you, you don't need to worry about birds flying out of trees. You don't need to worry about the weather report. You want to know if it's going to rain. You see colored woman running in heels. You know the drizzle is on the way. The drizzle is on the way. So it was just, you know, kind of, of, you know, as I grew older and and retrospectively allowing myself to break those stereotypes um, and and to lean in and accept and I think a lot of what I'm talking about now, and if you ask me where I am, I'm in a deep space of acceptance. And what that means is I believed for a long time that gratitude was the kind of founding principle of finding your happiness. And if, if you couldn't find a way to be grateful for the things you have, and I, I would journal and, 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 and write down what I'm grateful for. And then I realized that it's hard to be grateful if you haven't accepted who you are, where you mm-hmm. are, what you are, why you are. And once you've accepted all of these things about yourself, you can then start, A, moving. Because people would say things like, if you don't like where you are, move then that's not enough information. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's, that's, that's not enough information. Yes, it makes sense um, that if you don't change something, if you don't do something, then you can't complain about the same problems. But I, I, I felt it like, and, and, and weirdly, I love food. So I, I'd always be like, it's, it's exactly like Uber Eats. I can't order my favorite food if I'm not willing to tell the app where I am. 
You know what I mean? If, if I don't tell the app where I am and accept exactly where I am, I can't A, let my favorite things come to me, but I can't also GPS to where I'd like to go. So wherever my goals are, whatever my dreams are, if I haven't honestly accepted that I am where I am, whatever the reasons are actually don't matter because that doesn't change the fact that I am where I am. And that's why the show is called Dala What You Must. It is what it is because at all times it is what it is, whether mm. you like it or not, whether you think it's fair or not, whether it causes you pain or trauma or not. The quicker you are able to accept where you are and go, cool, whatever's happened, whatever's gone wrong, whatever trauma I've been through, this is where I find myself. Then think about where I'd like to be. Then like a GPS, it shows you the whole route. It gives you actually options. This one is going to be 18 minutes longer. This one is without tolls. shows you the whole route. You then choose your route. Then it doesn't show you the whole route ever again. It narrows it down to your next move. So from the whole route, it goes in 200 meters, turn right. Then all you need to do is focus on the next 200 meters. And when you get there, turn right. Then it will say, in three kilometers, keep left. That's the only instructions you need because you've put in where you're going. And now you can finally start moving. So that sentence, if you don't like where you are, move. Mm. I'm like, yeah, but you don't want to move out of one. How do I say this? You don't want to move from the kaka to the kaka. I can't, yeah. I can't say it yeah. anymore. Any more, 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 more grotesque, I suppose, than that, because it, just moving is not it. Where are you moving to? Why are you moving? Uh, because why are you moving is important. Because this is a journey you've got to keep moving every day. And if you don't know what your why is, and you're not clear on your why, then tomorrow you wake up in a bad mood and you stop moving. You just revert back because there's this learnt behavior, the socialization that becomes deep habit, and it doesn't matter how much kind of mental work you do and positivity you bring into your life if you don't do it every single day if you don't have your mantras to keep yourself on track and on the journey so you can't take a call and stop following the gps and then be angry that you don't end up at your at your destination you got to stick to the route you got to stick to the route and to stick to the route means you got to be dedicated to the journey so every day you got to kind of wake up remind yourself no one's coming to save me no one went to bed last night thinking about my debit orders. What do I want? Where am I now? What do I have to do? And then dollar what you must. Standing ovation. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. But now we're going back to when you were 17. Yes, yes. And the thought was that success equals money, money equals success. 100%. So let's carry on from that space. So initially I, I was like, I'm going to study accounting. And my mom said, are you crazy? You're barely passing accounting. And I said, no, but my, the, the uncle in the family and every, every colored family has that one rich uncle. I don't know if it applies to, to all families, but definitely in colored families, there's always that one rich uncle that made better decisions than your father. You know, your mother secretly, you know, is, is, is not crushing on him, but jealous of his ways and wishes your, your father would stop drinking and, and rather go to work, you know, which is, which is far truer than I'd, than, I'd, than I'd like to admit. And I was like, I'm going to be an accountant. And my mom was like, ah, you, 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 you're, not, uh, you're not thinking clearly. You're just thinking about the money. So she was like, study marketing. And I was like, why? And she was like, think about it like a picnic blanket. And if you study marketing, you'll have this vast picnic blanket and then you can put whatever you want on that blanket. You can build things later. You can go into accounting or finance if you think about it later. But you can also go into sales, which is where I think that you're kind of destined to go. And I was like, okay, cool. So, so uh, you know, being Jewish. Yes. What do you think were the three things that my mom told me to study? Doctor, lawyer, accounting. Dying. Hashtag. There we Full go. <laughs> and, and that's exactly the three people that a colored mother wants you to marry. You know what I mean? That's what we have. That's what our cultures have in common. Your moms were preparing you for our moms' children. You know what I mean? We were just coming to take over installments and enjoy the good life. Your pension fund, medical aid. Come on. And I said no because. 
I, it's for me, it's not about the money. It's about the passion and the joy. And this brings me back to that sum. So I spent my 20s chasing the, chasing the money, like head down chasing the money. If you ask me what I wanted to be, I would tell you I wanted to be rich. I didn't need to give you detail. I didn't care what the vehicle was to afford me that wealth. Mm. I just wanted to be rich. My th- so what I, was your definition of rich? So so my defin- of rich, uh, definition of rich then was having a more money than all of my friends. Okay. okay. More money than all of my friends, so I could live in a bigger house than all of my friends, so I could drive a better car than all of my friends, and that I could be the envy of all of my friends. But more than that, and it's still my definition today, like if people ask me, why aren't you having children? I go, because the options are simple. Have children or do whatever I want. You know what I mean? <laughs> yes. And from back then, I was like, money will afford me this opportunity to do whatever I want, whenever I want, and not have to listen to anybody, not take instruction from anybody, and just do whatever I want. I get into trouble for this with my wife till today because all I want to do is whatever I want, and I don't want to listen to anybody. And I'm stubborn, and it is what it is. So in your 20s, yes, did you find that you were comparing yourself a lot to your friends all the time? All the time. All the time. So not only comparing myself to my friends, but comparing myself to my perception of happiness. Yes. So I would look at other people and the things they had. I didn't need to even look at the emotional situation. I would just look at the things they had and would assume that they were happy because you must be happy driving a, a seven-seater luxury SUV. You have to be happy of course, yes. because you have a swimming pool. You have to be happy because you've got a tennis court and your dad plays golf. You know what I mean? You have to be happy. Because then, you've got the creepy Corley. That's and it. What were those things that you said you were in the public pool? The, the trolls, the yeah. trolls, yeah. The trolls, you know. People cuck in public pools. I don't make the rules. It's what they do. It's what people do. Because there's no trolls. It's just a creepy calling. 100%. So they must be happy. It, and, and, and so what, what happens is, is you look at all of these people, you have this vicarious relationship with your own happiness because it's instead of a reflection of what you want, it's a reflection of what you see and what you perceive. Mm-hmm. So I make money, lose money, make money, lose money. And the first lesson I learned in my 20s is that I hate the fact that my emotions became directly linked to my bank balance. When I had bucks, ah, the charming, the life of the party, the nicest person, lots of tolerance, lots of happiness. But when I was broke, ah, miserable, miserable, sad, depressed. And I was like, how can money have this much power over me, firstly? Number two is I made money, I lost money, and the more I chased the money, the more the money seemed to evade me. And I did the right things. Started an insurance brokerage when I was 25 after an amazing career. My first, my, you know, my 20 to 25, I was the, the, the glory boy of my community. I had more money than all, of my, than all of my mates. I was living my best life. I was making good decisions. I was working on weekends. I worked seven days a week for my entire 20s because I wasn't scared. My mom had made it very clear. You want all this money, you must be prepared to work harder than everybody around you. And that was an easy thing for me to understand. You want more, you got to do more. Very, very simple. So I have this, 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 this great career. Eventually find myself in insurance, not because I'm passionate about insurance, but because I was passionate about the potential of the amount of money that I could possibly make. Mm-hmm. Then 2008 comes. 2008 brought a ferocious recession, very similar to the one that I think we are only entering. A lot of people think we're in the middle of it, but I think we, we're only at the, the first cusp, the opening scenes. It's going to get worse. And if you, if you read the, the, the headlines and what everybody in the financial world is talking about, I think that my, my gut is right. But what I learned in 2008 is that people are terrible. Okay, People are shit. Mm-hmm. And the reason I say that is because people would much rather pay their DSTV subscription than their life cover. They would much rather make sure their kids are quiet and entertained in the short term than protect legacies in the long term. Mm-hmm. And that was a crazy thing for me, the way people thought. But I understand that. That's the way people are and that's the way it's going to be. And eventually we did some business with the wrong people, were taken for a lot of money. And I had a spectacular 
spectacular liquidation. I'm talking boiler room style. Literally, people owed me millions of rands and I walked into their business and there was nothing but telephone wires on the floor and they were, they were gone. They were gone. And these people had taken me... Um, and, and at the time, I didn't even realize that I should have immediately when I saw this happening, should have closed the business. But I think most entrepreneurs will relate that your first business specifically is, is like your child. You, you shouldn't ever, you know, keep your hands and your emotions in the same drawer in the fridge. But with your first business, you can't help it because you put your, your, your heart and soul into it. It feels like your dreams are finally coming true if it does start working. And I should have closed the business immediately, but we didn't. Instead, we used credit cards to pay salaries. We used revolving credit facilities. And it was also just the timing of things was terrible because it was just before the, you know, Consumer Protection Act, before FICA was coming into place um, and before the National Credit Act was coming into place. So banks were throwing credit at you because there was no consequence for them in terms of in terms of fair lending mm-hmm. uh, and responsible lending so we had all this access to 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 a remarkable amount of of, of debt um, and then it went bust because eventually the credit cards run dry eventually the the, the, the bank wants to take the the property back and we we bought an office um, which we thought is a, a financially sound mood move and and this devastated me on a number of levels number one I thought I was very responsible I didn't live above my means I didn't spend the business's money we reinvested we did everything that an entrepreneur book an open entrepreneurial book would have told you to do and we still went under and this destroyed me because how can you fail while doing the right things for the right reasons and while putting in a sincere amount of effort how can you still fail and that's when i learned that the world is not fair if you're going to expect the world to be fair it will disappoint you at every single turn and it will continue disappointing you until there's nothing left so i realized that it's up to me to do what i have to do the thing goes under in during this time i lose just about every relationship some of them are more complicated than others but not only am i heartbroken but i'm financially distressed and then i realized that because of this success equals happiness i'd created an identity of money around myself and now that that money was stripped away, I felt like I had no identity. I felt like I was nobody. My community that was looking up to me, my, and when I say my community, I'm talking friends, family, business associates. All of a sudden, I felt like I had no value to add and no value to bring. And then started feeling like, you know, am I even a man? I can't provide for myself. Never mind provide for anybody else. And you just get into this into this depressive spiral. Um, and and the more people try to kind of pull you out, the more your brain goes, you don't even understand what I'm going through. You know, people would want to quote people like Warren Buffett. And I'd be like, don't fucking quote billionaires to me. They don't understand my struggle. You know what I mean? They don't understand what I'm what I'm going through. Mm. Um, and, and literally getting to the point where I was suicidal and I thought that, you know what, it would just be easier for everybody, less embarrassing for my, for, my, for my family, less embarrassing for myself. If I just drove into a bridge, everybody knows I like speeding. They'd all believe that I you know, possibly lost control and died by mistake. And I didn't do it because how could I do that to my mom who'd sacrificed yeah. everything for me? It would be so unfair. And, and my mom was young. She had so many years left to live. And I'd, weirdly, and, and I've, never, I've never told this story before, but weirdly, my, my mom's best friend had lost her son tragically um, and had never recovered. I saw this, this person deteriorate um, uh, emotionally, yeah. physically, publicly. And I was like, well, I, the, the picture I had is that if I, if I were to do this to my mom, that would happen to her. And how selfish of me. Yeah. So I decided, well, okay, so what are you going to do? If you're not going to die, you've got to do something. And that's always been, you know, the lessons that I was raised of is don't do nothing, do something. Um, and if, if, if you're going to fail, you're going to learn. It's okay to fail, uh, but do something. And I'm 30 years old. I've lost everything. Um, I've, I have no hope. And I say to myself, okay, so do I want to go back into corporate? 
possibly. And then I went, okay, what do I really want to do? And I'd always wanted to be an entertainer. I'd always, I'd always, I sang in the school choir. I sang in the church choir. I did the school plays. Um, I'd been emceeing at Macro and on, on, on weekends in store uh, at that point for like 11 years. And I really loved the attention. And I think it took me a couple of years into comedy to admit that I part of the reason I enjoy what I do is I love the attention. I love that everybody has to keep quiet and listen to me. It's a wonderful, <laughs> it's a wonderful setup. It works. Uh, it works. And And then I was like, okay. Let's try acting and presenting. And I didn't go into that initially uh, because my mom worked for Mnet. So I, I, was, I had a little bit of access to this world and I'd go to these events and I'd see these so-called famous people dressed in amazing outfits and famous brands and they'd all leave in, in, in leaking city golfs that were leaking oil and smoking and I was like oh so if you want to be rich and famous you must go to America in South Africa there's either rich or famous decide you can't have both mm. and I was like in my 20s I wanted the money so I was like okay I'm not going to become an entertainer because I don't want to be poor um, I want to be I want to be rich so I'm going to do business and then I realized okay the rich thing is not working out let me follow this entertainment bug so I started in my mind going cool acting presenting i can do this went for a couple of auditions weirdly there were no other chubby cute colored guys at the auditions so my hit rate was amazing i got like one in two auditions that wow. i went to it was unbelievable just because people that come from my from my culture and look like me are so self-conscious because we tease each other to smithereens that you don't believe that you can be on tv you okay. think everybody that looks like you know at the time george clooney brad pitt only those o's can be on tv uh, but a chubby a chubby colored guy what are you going to do on tv and this helped me realize that charm is more powerful than a jawline and a six-pack combined. It's a, it, it was a simple truth that as long as you were, you were available and, and able to entertain people and able to take what you do seriously but not take yourself too seriously mm -hmm. was a, a, a really, really, really big point. So I go through this phase of going, to, going for auditions, starting to get them. Um, and then I get, I get a really big job with, with, with Castle Lager, which was my, the biggest campaign I'd done at the time. And it was, I, was, I was the face of the brand for, I think, I think three years. But on the first one we shot, I spent five days with, with who's now one of my best friends in the world, Sylvain Sir, Gessie, um, and, 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 and another friend, Brian van Nikerke, who had met on set. And after five days, these guys pull me aside and they go, yo, dude, we've been in the industry for a while. You should try stand-up comedy. So I go, guys, I'm complimented. I love making people laugh. I always have. I love stand-up comedy. I would I watch as much live stand-up comedy as I can. But I'm bri funny, not stage funny. Like, there's a difference. <laughs> there's a very big difference. It's awkward. You don't want to be the wooden mic of stand-up comedy. You know what I mean? You don't want to be the person that should have kept singing in the shower. Now you're on a whole idols. So you don't want to be the person. <laughs> so I was like, relax. Then Siv goes, no, you relax. I'm not saying you're going to be the next Trevor Noah. I'm not saying you can do this as a career. What I'm saying is you've done nothing but put effort into making us laugh, which means you love making people laugh. So I think you'll love stand-up comedy as a hobby. Try it as a hobby. hobby. And that is the best advice anybody's ever given me. And I give that advice to young comedians today and people that are trying to get into the industry going, if you're going to put the pressure of making this your career on it, chances are you're going to stifle it before it gets a chance to catch some tinder and catch some fire and burn. But if you start it because you love it and you're willing to do it for free because you love it, just like nobody bungee jumps expecting a paycheck, nobody skydives expecting mm -hmm. a paycheck, start comedy for the same reason. And that's exactly what I did. I spoke to Nicholas, Nicholas Goliath about it a few weeks later at a Mother's Day lunch and him and I were horribly drunk because, you know, when, you, when you're broke, you might drink the black label and carry on, you know, numb the pain. So uh, Nicholas is? So Nicholas Goliath is my cousin. Okay. Um, and and we, 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 a lot of people think we're brothers, but we grew up like brothers because our dads are brothers and our year apart. Our dads look like twins. 
And because our dads are so close, they've always lived within a kilometer of each, of each other our entire lives. So so Nick, for all intents and purposes, was my younger brother. I've got a younger sister, Kate, who's our, who's our MD. And it's just the two of us. Nicholas is an only child. And he always felt like a brother, lived with us for a few years and, and always been like, you know, like a, a, a bestie. And I say to Nick, hey, man, this brother says I must try stand-up comedy. And Nick goes, he tried stand-up comedy twice before. It didn't go well. So it did, went well his first time, terribly second time. And then he abandoned it for four years. And then we have this conversation and he says, I think I'm mentally ready to do it too. So in this drunken splendor, we go, we're going to try stand-up comedy. I go home, sleep off the black label, wake up to missed calls from Nicholas the next day, phone him back. And he's like, dude, I've made a booking for us. Six weeks, we're at the underground in Melville. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And he goes, no, stand-up comedy, we're trying it. And I go, no, bro, we were drunk. You don't make contracts under black label. They should be like, I'm sure there's something on the back of the bottle that says no contracts will be adhered to. Um, and, and he then goes, listen, the auntie gave me a hard time, um, thought I was playing around, so we can't pull out. we got six weeks. And I said to him, well, tell your wife, we're going to be going to the underground every Sunday for the next six weeks just to watch, just to get a feel, just to think about it. And he said, in his end, as he always does. And we did that. 3rd of July, 2011, Nicholas and I do our, our technically first time ever at the same, on the same night at the same show. And you know that, that movie, Waiting to Exhale, the song Waiting to yes. Exhale? And that's how I felt. I felt like I'd exhaled for the first time in my life. The first time I got a laugh, I'd never felt like I belonged more than that moment. I never felt more like this is exactly where I'm supposed to be and exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. The sense of euphoria was so big that my brain immediately went, oh my God, this is the best feeling I've ever had. I've got to work as hard as I can so that I can afford to do this as much as possible. Loved it so much, was willing to pay for it for the rest of my life. That's how, that's how much I, I loved it. And then all I had to do was do it. Very quickly, we identified that, you know, the, 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 the industry was, was young. Um, and, and I think in its infancy, had a lot of inexperience. And that inexperience uh, led to, I think, a lot of people not applying any business acumen uh, to the arts, which I think is a crime of the arts. I think a lot of people become artists without understanding anything about business. And unfortunately, success in the arts, particularly in this digital age, has got more to do with the work behind the scenes than it does with the actual talent. So I'd go 20% talent, 80% everything else you do, rushing through Bryanston traffic to get to a podcast, for example. You know what I mean? It's more important to get to that podcast on time. That's, that's, what, they, that's what the industry had become. And I said to Nick, listen, these guys are sleeping. A lot of them have kind of attached their brands to themselves instead of building businesses. And I think there's a lot of opportunity. Um, and there's also no, no governing bodies, no rules, uh, nobody that we have to ask permission from. We can literally just entertain people. And from inception, I think we became very clear about the fact that comedy is different to any other form of arts because it's not about individual success. It's an individual sport. You go on stage alone, mm -hmm. but you need other comedians to build a fruitful industry. You need other comedians to do well. And unlike musicians, for example, we don't compete. So if you're a comedian and I'm a comedian and you perform for an audience tonight and they love you, they don't want to see you and your jokes again tomorrow. Yeah. But what you've done is you've created an appetite for comedy yes. and an audience for me. So when I do the same, I create an audience for you, which means we need a number of great comedians. And we were only going to get great comedians if we had a number 
of platforms for those comedians to be able to exercise and get fit and get good. And that's what you see. You go to any other African country where there's hardly any platforms to perform and you put a South African comedian up against them, even though we have a quarter of the platforms and opportunities to perform as, as the Western world does and the first world does, we are still miles ahead of those that don't have an opportunity to kind of flex that muscle and, and, and get it fit. And, you know, the rest, as they say, is history. It took me it took me over 11 years, nearly 12 years in the industry to, I think, find my voice and understand that it's not just about making people laugh, but the importance of if you have somebody listening, sometimes it's, it's more important to have something to say to them than just to make them laugh. And, and I remember just before COVID having this realization that I think success to me at a show was no longer on a lineup show getting the biggest laughs of the night, but being the comic that people are speaking about in the car on the way home. That's what success meant to me. Who's the one that touched them? Who's the one that they feel closest to? Who's the one that engaged them the hardest, the closest, and put effort into kind of getting, you know, breaking that barrier that exists between the stage and the audience and taking the rapport that exists between a comedian and and, and their audience to a, a, a level that, that almost made it personal and as personal as it could be so that you leave feeling like you know me intimately and when you see me again you think we're friends because a lot of people see me after performing and treat me like i've been to school with them which is a wonderful wonderful mm -hmm. thing let's unpack a whole bunch of there's things. a lot of things i said there. i'm sorry I'm you know the, it's okay i'm the longest winded individual no that's Earth. fine that's fine now it's my turn <laughs> yes go 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 do you prefer performing your own standalone show or in a comedy lineup which is better or worse for you so both of them have their pros and cons. P performing your own show is naturally better because the audience came to see you. Okay. So everybody in that room uh, volunteered to come and watch you. Mm -hmm. The problem with performing in a lineup show is sometimes they came to see the guy after you. Okay. And now they can't wait for you to get done no matter how well you're doing. Um, and and that, those, are, those are my favorites too because I'm a, I'm a petty, slightly arrogant, very competitive person. And very early, I, 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 and, I, and I would say this to Nicholas often, I realized very early that it doesn't matter where on the lineup you are placed headline the show and i would say that to nicholas all the time it doesn't matter if you're opening the show or closing the show or going in the middle headline the show make yourself difficult to follow and also when you're on a lineup show if they did come to see the guy after you very often the expectations of you were low and that's where i took my gaps because i had so much microphone experience before starting stand-up comedy i already knew how to engage with audiences and how to feel close to people and and that created i think the benefit of of, of me exceeding people's expectations Expectations, but then the pressure of those expectations starts competing with your experience. So now, because people have seen you on TV, they assume you've been doing comedy for a long time. And I just started doing comedy a few years after I'd started appearing on TV in different ads, etc. And then there was this race between my experience and the expectation that that, ex that 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 my public persona had created and the audience expectation versus my experience. I always felt that I Every, every show was Champions League final. Every show I had to perform out of my skin, which is exhausting, but it also allowed me to not only catch up, but I think pass a lot of my peers uh, because I put myself in that position of, of do or die, fight or flight, every single performance. Your comedy routines, is yeah. it inspired mainly by personal experiences or what's happening in the world or both? I, I would say at the moment it's it's almost 90% personal experiences, personal observation and and observations of the experiences I have with other people. So I wouldn't speak as much about 
what you're doing versus what I'm mm-hmm. doing. But I might speak about the fact that you complain about X and I see you do Y. And that's why I do X and my result is Z. So I, I, I may I may compare in that way, but it's 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 I feel like I'm trying to make comedy for humans, not necessarily a specific person. I'm trying to make the type of comedy that everybody can enjoy. And and even though, you know, that can be and, and in the in the early days I used to call it uh because I, I never used to, I used to be very crass, very aggressive on stage, you know, and speaking about things that made people uncomfortable, which I still do, but in a in a in a in a far more, I think, acceptable and a far more constructive way. So I would say to people I hate Toyota Corolla comedy. And what I mean by that is the, the Toyota Corolla is, is nobody's favorite car. Like, you know, nobody kids, no kid goes to bed dreaming of Toyota Corolla. <laughs> but also nobody hates a Toyota Corolla. Yeah. You know what I mean? The, it, it's, it's, it's the vanilla. It's the acceptable. It's the, it's the one that gets you the mass audiences and the most people on your side. And I think what experience has allowed me to do is maintain the integrity of doing uh, uh, Lamborghini comedy, uh, but be able to make those Lamborghinis now accessible and relatable to people who drive Toyota Corollas. Okay. I think that's a great sentence, actually. It's yeah. a T-shirt. Yeah, it's a T-shirt. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. The creative process, in the sense that from creating nothing to an hour, hour and a half show, yeah. is that an easy process for you, or is it uh, sometimes a challenge? It's a daunting process, I think. You know, but 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 daunting is is um, uh, I think a thing of a thing of perception. So in the beginning, five minutes was forever. If you give me five minutes today, I'm going to walk on stage and say, "Hi, I'm Jason Goliath." That takes me five minutes yep. introducing myself. So you know, as you grow in comedy, your first five is is hard. Your first fifteen is hard. Your first twenty is hard. Your first thirty is hard. Uh, your first hour is difficult. Then it becomes even more difficult to create a whole new hour. And because my style has never been, you know, like any of the other comedians that I that I get to that I get to play on stage with, in terms of them writing down sets, uh, developing gags, having set lists, my style has always been more conversational. And because my microphone experience allowed me to understand how to engage with uh, a, a plethora of different people, I'd like to say almost anybody and everybody, I'm able to change my delivery depending on the audience's needs. So somebody once said to me that. Comedy is more conversational than any other art form because if you think about a stage actor, they're going to perform their rehearsed delivery exactly the same Mm -hmm. way no matter what the audience is doing. Where with stand-up comedy, the audience may not get to talk back, but they, they, they react. So you talk and the audience either laughs, they sigh, they ooh, they ah, they boo, or there's dead silence. Um, then there's good silence, bad silence, there's, there's tension, there's, there's, you know, and it's, and it's this, this conversation. So to go on stage with a very clear idea of what I'd like to say, a very clear idea of what the worked bits are, but I can be completely vague in between those bits and take you on a very unique journey so that every show uh, seems to be curated specifically for this audience. The benefit of that for me is that the shelf life of my gags is a lot longer than any other comedian, which means I don't have to come up with new material as consistently as a one-liner comic, for example, who once you've heard that one-liner, you've heard it. Mm-hmm. I get away with three or four times before you get fatigued from listening to the same to, to, to the same gag. So yes, it is very difficult, but experience allows you to go. So I've got, if I, if I think about the show that I'm currently doing, which eventually will be an hour, hour 10 max. I did an hour 30 last night by mistake. So I had 
30 minutes of, of prepared content where I understood the beats, the gags, the laughs, the breaths, the funny moments. That then gets interwoven uh, with, with, with kind of a whole lot of improv that is improv, but it's improv from a space of experience. So yeah. I'm kind of going through this, this, this bag of goodies and this arsenal of funny stuff. And within the moment, I'm able to create stuff that feels written, that feels developed, that feels tested. Uh, so experience definitely does help, but I think my style is also conducive to being able to do an hour of so-called fresh content a lot easier than, for example, somebody that's got to scrap an hour and write an hour. I need to write 20 to 30 minutes to do an hour. Would you agree in this comment that comedians are artists that are able to read energies of the audiences very well. Absolutely. And they have to. And the better the better the comedian, the more intense the ability to read audience emotion and react appropriately becomes. So it's almost like that neuro... I, I've always wanted to do a neuro-linguistic programming course uh, because I thought it would make me a superhero on stage and I'd almost be able to anticipate. But I feel like if I did that course today, all it would do is is put uh, labels on things I already knew. So instead of, instead of calling it a leg... I'd use that scientific term now. You know what I mean? Because it's things that I've got to do all the time. I've got to read your body language. I've got to read your facial expression. Because I'm also the type of comedian that goes into the audience and roasts the audience. I've got to know who can be roasted, who hates being roasted, who wants to be roasted, where the lines are so that you don't ever offend anybody uh, and don't ever take it too far. And you've got to kind of find that line to tread and remember at all times that if it's not entertaining, you shouldn't be doing it. And all of that programming in terms of reading people's body language, facial expressions definitely help. So to answer your question, yes, comedians I think are more in tune um, than just about anybody else. I'm an NLP coach. Come on. <laughs> Come on. I should have smelt it. I should have smelt it. <laughs> yes, I've studied it. And I've, yeah, that's why I asked that question. <laughs> oh, so so, so you, you see it in action when we do it. Yeah. You see us You see us being a, a what do they call the guy? that Conductor. Directs, a conductor. Yes. And, and that's exactly it. So we can A, identify where you're at, which allows us to manipulate your mood. So, you know, people have been saying, what do you want people to, 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 to get out of your new show? And I go, I want people to feel whether they're... They like it or not so that answers my question because you know as nlp people per, uh, process information either yes. visually kinesthetically or yes. auditory yes so you are obviously a kinesthetic processing person yes there we go what so does we, kinesthetic mean kinesthetic means <laughs> Sorry, that, no no that's fine it's <laughs> Kinesthetic means that the way you process information is through the energy, the body language, the tone of voice, yes, all that kind of absolute. stuff. Absolutely. Visual, absolutely. Visual people, they create images in their mind uh-huh. and order treats through the audio yes. or through the words that are being spoken. Okay. Okay. So kinesthetic people yes. take the longest to process. 100%. Visual people are the quickest auditory in between. Makes sense. So just some Makes learnings sense. for the listening audience and for Mr. Goliath I mean, over well here. <laughs> and, and, and I can tell you that, that with experience, comedians can do the, the, the kiny what, what, what. Kinesthetic, that yes. One. They can do that one as quickly as the visual one. Yes. So within within a split second, I can see what your mood is doing. I can see what my words are doing. And I can edit on the go what I'm about to say to either go harder, go softer, yep. um, to make sure that, that, that you're happy. My wife sees it every time I get pulled into a roadblock because I'm immediately able to address the officer in a way that gets me off immediately <laughs> just by <laughs> watching the way he's walking towards the car. I'm already, I'm on it. I'm so on you it. see, the thing is that you have your primary processing yes. and then your secondary. So you obviously primary kinesthetic and then secondary visual. So yes. there we go. <laughs> yeah, I like it. I like it. Diagnosed. Diagnosed. Yes. <laughs>
top five people putting you on the spot. Yes. Top five local international, whether it's actors, comedians, that you would like to collaborate with in a show, live or in television. Go. Whoa, this is this is so difficult. I would love to. Yo, Trevor Noah, I'd love to come and open for you, but not in South Africa. I'd like to come and open for you in any any country in the world except South Africa. And not 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 that I don't want to open for you in South Africa, but just because I think that there are so many great comedians that need the opportunity locally um, that I think would benefit from it far more than more than I would. So I would love to open for Trevor just to get that that feeling and that sensation of what those 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 Instagram videos look like. Um, I would I would love to tour the world with Dave Chappelle. Um, a, so that we can become best friends and B, so that I can get to watch his comedy every single day because I think Dave Chappelle at the moment is the greatest living comedian um, in terms of somebody who is able to drive messaging, be thought-provoking, tread the line, but has also worked himself to a point where he doesn't really have to care about your opinion. He only has to care about his truth. And as long as he's sincere to that truth, he gets away with saying things that, that, that you know, in our wildest dreams we couldn't get a get get away from um locally i would i would love to do a a, a kind of south african kings of comedy um and i and i think guys like Mpo pops who i think is the funniest man in south africa at the moment um just uh, I, and, and weirdly Mpo pops headlined the first half of the night that was my first ever performance and it was the first time i'd ever seen him live and I, then my mind was blown and every time I see him even though we're great friends now my mind is still blown Skumba Hlope let me tell you Skumba is so funny and Skumba reminds me of my all-time favorite comedian my spirit animal which is the late great Bernie Mac uh, who was just somebody who would bully the audience into laughing and that's what, that's what Bernie Mac was and that's what Skumba was I find Skumba so funny that even in Vanak when he, he's saying something that I cannot understand it's funny you know when somebody's just funny in their bones yes. in, their, in, their, in, their, in their essence uh, so, that, so that's for I've got, to, I've got to give you one more local, local or international um, and I, I think I'm going to cheat this and and say that to piss Dave Chappelle off I would love to do a skit show with Key and Peel. so I'll do Key and Peel as one as one person and then it would piss Dave Chappelle off and that would give us something to talk about while we're on tour <laughs> and then we would make skits with Key and Peel about pissing Dave Chappelle off guys we're on to something amazing let's make this work let's There's, make this work get put your, it get, out there manifest it to call my people come on manifest it let's do it now the podcast is listened to international oh, yeah. internationally the top five countries it's listened to is UK USA Australia South Africa Africa fourth, actually. And then Belgium, I think, is the last check I had. Nice. As a final message to the listening audience, what would you like to say? So what I'd like to say to the listening audience is this. Number one, South African comedians are the best in the world. <laughs> They're the best in the world because first world comedy is not fair on first world comedians. They all go to the same schools. They go eat at the same places. They have the same conversations. And when I watch first world comedy, 90% uh, uh, of the comedians I engage with have a very similar cadence. And unfortunately, that breeds predictability. South Africa is such a diverse country where our, our cultures have subcultures. And within those subcultures, there are even further subcultures, which means... Not only are we natural storytellers because of the way we came up and because we didn't have access to first world entertainment our entire lives, we were forced to tell each other stories. But I find our stories to be a lot more dense, a lot more appropriate, and for some reason, I'm a lot more relatable, as I said, to, to human beings. The second thing I want to say to everybody is remember that nobody's coming to save you. 
And if COVID taught me one thing, it's that you could, you could die at any time. The only thing we truly have is time. And I've become so conscious of what I'm doing with my time. And, and so much so that I, I have this thing in my mind where I go, if you were to die today and you got to the pearly gates and Uncle Peter said to you, listen, we've got a little cinema here. We will make you watch the movie that is your life. How many of you would skip the movie because it's boring? Because it, it had 30 years of you doing the same thing and experiencing no joy. We've Capitalism has indoctrinated us into planning how much we can play based on how much we work, where I feel what we should have been taught is to understand that the only thing money affords us is experiences. So to instead of have how much you play be informed by how much you work, you should first think about how much you'd like to play and let that inform how hard you have to work. Because as long as you work a little bit harder than you want to play, you are always going to be okay. So play, have fun, find your happiness, figure out what makes you happy. Stop looking at other people. Stop worrying about what they think. If if somebody's opinion is not in the same WhatsApp group as your debit orders, why do you even care about their opinion? Chase your happy because nobody's going to do it for you. And it's simple. You're the director, the writer, the casting director of the movie that is going to be your life. So make sure it has the right stars. Make sure it ticks all of the boxes of a movie that you love. I like a movie that has rock and roll, sex scenes, love scenes. Somebody's got to die. Someone's got to cry. Someone's got to laugh. So I'm not saying you've got to be airy-fairy and marshmallows and unicorns and kumbaya about your happiness. But I'm saying you've got to honestly understand what type of movie you want your life to be because nobody's coming to save you. 